So it's a great pleasure to be here out in West Virginia, second trip this year. Um, as you heard, this is part of uh, the 5th Federal Reserve District, um, and um, it's uh, an important part of my job and our job at the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond to get out and understand the communities around us. I need to, I, I want to uh, give a shout out to, to two people I know in the audience who've greatly helped us understand uh, the West Virginia world. Uh, one is Pat Graney, who currently serves on our board of directors. Um, it's a little known fact about the Federal Reserve System that the 12 independent Federal Reserve banks around the country each have their own board of directors. We're each a separately incorporated bank of sorts. Um, this structure kind of gives us a bit of insulation from what goes on inside the Beltway in Washington uh, and I think has served us well over the years. But the other way in which it's served us well is this coterie of directors we have that are, just bring us uh, just a rich array of, of reports about what's going on around our country. And um, Pat's done a great job for us uh, in bringing us what's going on in West Virginia. Um, another, we have an ex-director here. And I don't see his face. There he is, it's Newt Thomas over there. Newt has been, done just a fantastic job for us over the years, um, it, it, both as a director many years ago, and I can't remember what decade it was in, Newt, <laughs> and I'm afraid to ask, but um, it, it, since then as, a, as an alum in introducing us to folks in the West Virginia community, we've gotten to know and love this place coming out here. Uh, another little shout out, Jack Dormany used to work uh, at the Richmond Bank now, um, a professor uh, and an award-winning uh, teacher, professor at the College of Business Economics. We're really proud of him as a as a Federal Reserve alum as well. But I came to, to, to talk to you um, about uh, the U.S. Uh, economic outlook and prospects for uh, growth in the United States. In addition, I'm going to talk a, a little bit about monetary policy. Monetary policy is one aspect of the economic outlook that a lot of people seem to have a keen interest in uh, from time to time. And uh, there's good reason for that. It makes sense because uh, monetary policy plays an important role in providing a backdrop of monetary and financial stability against which people can make the decisions they make uh, to make investments, um, how much they work, how much they spend, uh, the things we do to advance prosperity in our country. Um, but I think the role of monetary policy is often overstated. So I'll, I'll make a, a few remarks about what monetary policy can and cannot um, accomplish. Before I begin, though, uh, whenever you see a Federal Reserve official, chances are you're going to hear them say this at some point. Uh, the remarks I make are my own uh, and reflect my own views and they're not necessarily shared by any colleagues within the Federal Reserve System. So about monetary policy. Moni monetary policy is primarily about inflation. Uh, so let me begin with an overview of the inflation outlook. Um, over the last 20 years, taking 20 years, going back to 1993, late 1992, um, inflation has averaged 2% per year. In fact, to be precise, 2.07% uh, per year. Now, to be sure, inflation has varied, has fluctuated from time to time. It's gotten as high as 4% once uh, a couple years ago. It's gotten as low as negative 1%. But it always tends to come back. It has, at least, over that time period, always tended to come back to around 2%. In fact, over the last three years, inflation's averaged 2.06%. Now, the inflation rate over the last couple of months has been especially high uh, because we've had a recent bulge in retail gasoline prices. 
Uh, so measurements for August and September show pretty elevated inflation rate. But economists, and I agree with this outlook, are expecting inflation to trend back down to 2% or a little less over the next year or two. And that's an outlook I, I concur with. Now, this record of low and fairly stable inflation over the last two decades is a substantial improvement uh, over previous decades. And that improvement needs to be kept in mind uh, when you think about monetary policy in recent years. The Federal Open Market Committee, the FOMC is what we call it, the lingo. This is the group that decides on monetary policy within the Federal Reserve System, um, issued a really important statement in January of this year. Um, it, the statement is titled Longer Run Goals and Policy Strategies. Uh, but we came, to, we came to call it the consensus statement as, as we were working through this last year uh, in the committee. And it was indeed a consensus statement. Uh, instead of just seeking the approval of the voting members of the FOMC, a little aside here, you may know that the 12 Reserve Bank presidents rotate. Only five of them vote any one year. And this is a year in which I'm a voting member next year and someone else will take my place as a voter, Eric Rosengren up in Boston. Instead of just seeking the approval of just the voting members, they sought the approval of all the participants, all the Reserve Bank presidents and all of the, the members of the Board of Governors. And none voted against it, so it really was a, a consensus document. The, the, the statement did some important things. In that statement, the committee stated for the first time what its inflation objective was, what inflation rate it was trying to achieve. It stated that inflation at a rate of 2% as measured by the annual uh, rate of change, the annual change in the price index for personal consumption expenditures, that's the variety of inflation index that we, everyone feels is most um, methodologically sound, that uh, a, a rate of change in 2% in that is consistent over the longer run with the Federal Reserve's statutory mandate. That, this confirmed the belief a lot of Fed watchers had that that was our implicit goal. And it, it had been sort of talked about as our implicit target for some time. But this was the first official record uh, of, the, of the Federal Reserve coming out on record and saying uh, that was our inflation objective. So beginning an, uh, an economic outlook talk by talking about inflation is not the usual approach. When you look at speeches given by Federal Reserve officials and Reserve Bank presidents, typically they'll talk about uh, the economy or labor markets and then talk about inflation. Of course, inflation is part of the economy, but they'll talk about real growth and the like before they talk about inflation. But I've, I've been doing this lately, starting out by talking about inflation, just to emphasize that the behavior of inflation is fundamentally attributable to the actions of the central bank over the long haul. Uh, the central bank is the one that determines the purchasing power of money. Central banks have a monopoly on the supply of some special monetary assets. The hand-to-hand -hand paper currency you use, plus bank reserve account balances with us. These are the reserves. These are the, this is the money banks use to settle payments between each other. Those two special kinds of monetary assets we have a monopoly on. The supply of those assets together with the demand determines the value of those assets. In other words, the purchasing power of money. This is just like the supplier demand of any good determines its value. An excessive supply of money is going to lead to inflation. Uh, that is a rise in the overall price level. And uh, an insufficient supply is going to lead to deflation, a fall in the price level, both things we want to avoid. Excessive inflation or deflation 
can therefore legitimately blame, be blamed on the central bank. And conversely, the central bank deserves a little credit when inflation is low and stable as it has been for the last couple of decades. So while inflation is the responsibility of the Federal Reserve, real economic growth and labor market conditions are affected by a wide range of factors over which the Federal Reserve has no direct control. And that's why I emphasize that there's a distinction between inflation and growth and, and labor market conditions. Even at their best, modern economies are, are affected by shocks, unanticipated developments, disturbances that knock the economy off course. And even the, at their best, uh, modern economies take time to adjust to those unanticipated shocks. And our economy was hit by a very large unanticipated shock with the collapse in residential construction uh, that occurred at the very onset of the recession we've just been through. The pace of adjustment uh, to shocks depends on a variety of frictions in the economy. Frictions in the way firms determine the right prices to charge uh, for their goods and services. Frictions in the process of searching for the most promising opportunities to redeploy newly available capital, newly available labor resources. And frictions in the way employers and workers search for each other in the job market uh, and find good matches. Monetary policy is simply unable to offset all the ways in which various frictions impede the economy's adjustment to various shocks over time. It's unfortunate, but the effects of monetary stimulus on real growth and employment are less than widely, is widely thought, I believe. And I, they consist largely of the transitory byproduct of frictions that delay the, the timely adjustment of, of prices uh, to changes in monetary conditions. Now, I'll say more at the end about current monetary policy. And um, my, the, you, you've heard about my recent dissents. I'll say a little bit more about that at the end. But let's turn now to look at the actual uh, growth outlook. So the, the Great Recession, um, as you know, bottomed out officially um, in the second quarter of 2009. Um, but the expansion in economic activity since then has been disappointing, I think it's fair to say. Real gross domestic product, for example, that's our most comprehensive measurement of economic activity, has risen at an average rate of 2.16%, an average annual rate of 2.16% during this recovery. And labor market conditions have been especially disheartening. We lost over 8 million jobs uh, in the contraction and the immediate aftermath. And since bottoming out in early 2010, we've added 4.5 million new jobs. And that, but that leaves us far, as you can see, far from a complete recovery. In West Virginia, the labor market conditions followed a similar path during the recession, although the timing was lagged a bit by, uh, from the national trend by a, a factor of several months. Uh, so the state lost over 25,000 jobs from the peak of employment to the trough reached in early 2010. And since then, um, has only recovered about one-third of the jobs that were lost in the recession. West Virginia labor market conditions have weakened in recent months, uh, sort of bucking the national trend. And the unemployment rate here has climbed now for five consecutive months. Recent job losses seem to have been concentrated in the energy sector. Uh, and no doubt that reflects depressed prices for coal and natural gas, as well as shifts in the regulatory regime, uh, which have taken a bite out of 
activity in the energy sector recently as well. So at the U.S. level, several factors seem to have impeded uh, economic uh, growth and prevented a more rapid recovery. First, by the end of the housing boom, we had built more houses, many more houses, than we truly needed. The, the resulting inventory overhang has led to a large and persistent decline in new residential investment. It now looks as if the worst is behind us, though, and new construction activity is gradually improving, especially this year. Moreover, home prices in many markets have bottomed out and begun to increase. Now, having said that, residential investment is still um, less than 2.8% of, of GDP, and that compares to 6.2% back in 2005. So, it's a significantly smaller fraction of economic activity in our country um, uh, still. Uh, and so we're still way behind uh, the level of housing activity we had in uh, the boom and run up to the contraction. So we still haven't seen a big, the, the big rebound that we typically get coming out of recession in uh, the housing market. Typically, we get these swift recoveries in housing activity. And, and that helps economic activity rebound more rapidly. We haven't seen that this time. But I think that given the extent of housing oversupply uh, that developed before the recession, we shouldn't expect a rapid rebound in housing markets. And we shouldn't expect them to boom uh, that the, way they, the way they did in many places um, before the, the contraction. A second and related factor behind the slow recovery was the significant shift in economic activity away from residential construction in the contraction, uh, away from residential construction, housing finance, and related uh, industries that supply residential construction. The rapid loss of jobs in those industries is on top, it was layered on top of long-standing, sort of ongoing secular trends in the labor market, uh, sectoral shifts away from manufacturing employment. And the result was a large inflow into the ranks of the unemployed and it's taken a considerable time to whittle down uh, that the unemployment rate as a result. Now, in, in part, this was predictable. It often requires uh, retraining, substantial retraining in some cases, for laid-off workers to find employment in other sectors of the economy when, where jobs and, and opportunities are, are becoming available. In addition, um, capital investment is often required uh, to put new workers uh, to work in a new um, opportunity as well, uh, when, particularly when uh, workers move between sectors. And as a result of factors like this, the unemployment rate can stay elevated for quite some time. Uh, and in this case, it's been elevated for a long and frustrating interval uh, since the recession. Third fact, um, factor in impeding economic growth in this recovery is that the Great Recession seems to have made many consumers more cautious and less willing to spend relative to their income and wealth than they were before the recession. So prior to the recession, American households experienced about a two and a half decade run uh, with just two mild recessions in which job losses were relatively uh, confined. In contrast, the declines in income and wealth in, during the recent recession were far more severe than anything American households had seen since the very early 80s or, or the 1970s. As a result, and this seems to have affected consumers' confidence. Consumers seem much more apprehensive about their future prospects. 
Uh, so while consumer spending has been growing during this recovery, the tempered pace of that growth has um, limited the overall pace of the expansion relative to previous recoveries. Um, and since consumer spending is two-thirds of the economy, that's been a major effect. Finally, uh, for uh, most of this year, our business contacts around the district have been emphasizing uh, that uncertainty has been causing them to delay hiring and investment commitments. Now, their uncertainty may have multiple sources, including the situation in Europe you heard something about just a few moments ago. Uh, the most widely mentioned source of uncertainty, though, among our contacts is our nation's fiscal policy, our tax and spending policy. Here I'll mention two separate and distinct aspects of the federal fiscal situation. One is the fiscal cliff uh, that you've heard so much about, the combination of spending cuts and tax increases that are going to automatically occur at the beginning of the year if Congress fails to act. The total size of these changes is such that should they all take effect um, and remain in effect for a considerable period, uh, the economy is likely to contract and move back into recession. The second relevant aspect of the federal fiscal outlook is the long-run imbalance between taxes and spending. According to projections by the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, the deficit's likely to decline for the next couple of years, uh, but then move higher, uh, both in dollar terms and as a, a fraction of GDP, as a ratio to our total uh, income and output in the country. This implies that the outstanding stock of federal debt is going to increase without bound as a ratio to our income. So, you know, imagine in your household, imagine your debt growing faster than your income. That can't go on forever. Pretty soon, debt service eats up your income uh, and it becomes an unsustainable situation. This is not feasible. Those projections will not come true. Something else will happen in the meantime. Uh, at some point, Congress is going to have to bring taxes and spending into closer alignment. But the set of policy choices that Congress and the administration have available to them and that, have been, that are being considered, if you look at that set, everyone's affected by something that's on the table right now. Everybody's effect, almost everyone is affected directly in the pocketbook, businesses, consumers, by something that's on the table in uh, the negotiations over how to bring about a more sustainable fiscal outlook. So until we get a fiscal plan that's sustainable, um, consumers and businesses are going to be making decisions under this immense cloud of uncertainty. And the result of that is that they're going to be reluctant to make commitments, commitments that lead to job growth, hiring, investment, um, and uh, expanding prosperity. Now, in the result of these, these factors impeding growth, to me, make, make the, the sluggishness of growth we've seen recently understandable. Economies take time to recover from shocks. And if, if you look back at how other advanced economies have recovered from uh, recessions that are associated with housing slumps, if you just isolate housing-related recessions in the, in the historical record, you'll find that the current recovery is not uh, out of the ordinary. It's in the ballpark relative to other, other advanced economies that have suffered housing-related slumps. Now, what's exceptional about uh, the current recovery relative to historical analysis is that it was a deeper contraction 
than many other uh, advanced economies suffered in, in those recessions. So that's, that's what's distinguishing our, our situation now. This is, we had a deep contraction. We're recovering at about the normal pace, but we've had a deeper contraction. It's gonna take a while to get back from that. So what does the future hold for our economy? Let's turn and, and look forward. My best guess, well first, I'm not sure. Uh, and if someone tells me they're sure, um, please discount whatever they say. But my best guess um, is that growth is gonna continue uh, into next year at a rate of about 2% or a little above that uh, for next year. And then towards the end of next year, growth should firm and, and pick up pace in 2014 and beyond. Several important suppositions lie behind that uh, forecast. First, I expect to see meaningful progress on federal budget issues now that the election's behind us. Um, as I mentioned a moment ago, it won't be enough just to sidestep the fiscal cliff uh, to meaningfully reduce that uncertainty overhanging U.S. households and businesses about tax and spending policy, the uncertainty that's discouraging private sector commitments. We are going to have to see convincing progress towards a sustainable long-run trajectory of federal policy. Giving the proverbial can a few more kicks down the road is likely to mean continued uncertainty and further disappointment in labor markets. So that's a, a downside risk to my outlook. Second, while the European recession um, and the fiscal challenges um, uh, that they're facing pose risks to the U.S. economic outlook, I expect those risks to diminish next year. European growth has been dampened by the strains they're under uh, as they go through the process of uh, constructing a new collective fiscal regime. At the same time, uh, they're uh, trying to cope with the aftermath of the old fiscal regime that they were under. Despite repeated visits to the brink of financial disorder, Euro area policymakers have made notable progress uh, towards uh, new institutional arrangements. And luckily, to date, uh, the impact on U.S. exports has been manageable, and the spillover to U.S. financial institutions and financial markets uh, has been quite limited. Third supposition behind my outlook is, is that it's predicated on a continuation of the gradual improvement we've seen in household confidence about their future prospects. Improvements in the effectiveness of labor markets in matching uh, unemployed workers with good opportunities for them and uh, modest growth in housing prices, um, I think should combine to reduce consumer apprehension about downside risks and I think that'll bolster uh, spending going forward. Finally, this outlook is built on the usual assumption of no unanticipated shocks, in fact, sort of by definition. Uh, it's hard to construct a forecast uh, any other way. Significant energy price increases uh, could temporarily reduce overall economic growth, um, although ultimately they would lead uh, to um, more exploration uh, and new production. Uh, as un an unexpected downturn in growth among our major trading partners uh, also has the uh, potential to impede um, U.S. growth. At this point, the recession in Europe appears to be mild, shallow, uh, and the same thing for Japan. Uh, but if it was larger, that could impede our growth. On the other hand, a stronger than expected resurgence in confidence is not inconceivable. Uh, a rapid um, and convincing progress towards fiscal sustainability, for example, could unleash a, a rush of, of pent-up spending. Uh, so that's a, an upside risk to this outlook. 
even though growth has been below a uh, long-run trend since the recession, I think the fundamental prospects for the U.S. economy um, remain quite strong. Uh, increases in real income ultimately depend on the implementation of new products and services and new ways of producing existing products and services. Those, that's the fundamental driver of increases in productivity, and those, al those always pass through in one form or another um, into increases in standards of living. We have a proven ability here in the United States uh, to generate scientific, new scientific knowledge and to apply new commercial, uh, apply those, uh, that new knowledge and new commercial innovations. Uh, we've, been, we've done it for decades. The flexibility and resilience of our markets compared to other advanced economies, along with a, a relatively well-educated population, combined to make this a, a really exceptional place to implement new ideas. If you're gonna, if you're gonna roll out a new product, if you're gonna build something new, this is a good place to do it ultimately. Our major challenge over the longer haul is to find effective ways to deepen the knowledge and skills of our workforce. Because expanding our human capital, expanding the knowledge base we have to work with and all our citizens is really fundamental uh, to improving our standards of living over time. Um, so in short, I'm cautiously optimistic about the near-term outlook and I see grounds for more optimism um, about long-term growth prospects in the United States. So what role does monetary policy play uh, in this outlook? And as I said, our primary responsibility is to keep inflation low and stable, which allows consumers and businesses to make economic decisions without having to worry about whether inflation is going to be high or low. The FOMC took an important step to solidify confidence in our commitment to price stability with the release of that January consensus statement I told you about that formalized our long-run inflation goal of 2%. Um, having stated that goal, it's incumbent upon us to follow through with policy actions that are consistent uh, with maintaining 2% inflation on average. Um, beyond hitting our inflation target, though, it's not clear whether monetary policy by itself uh, can bring about uh, any material improvement in economic growth right now in our economy. The Fed's currently increasing the quantity of bank reserves I told you about earlier, um, by buying securities, um, both long-term U.S. Treasury securities uh, and by buying uh, agency mortgage-backed securities. These are securities issued by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the like. In my view, the supply of bank reserves is already quite ample and is certainly large enough to support a strengthening economy going forward. At the same time we're doing that, it's important to recognize that we cannot continually buy more securities and create more bank reserves without jeopardizing our inflation goal in one way or another. Accordingly, I have opposed additional easing steps at FOMC meetings this year. My main concern is that uh, we have eased pol policy aggressively for four straight years now, and at some point, the growth outlook is going to improve enough that the FOMC will need to begin raising interest rates and reducing the supply of bank reserves in order to preserve price stability um, that we have, in, the price stability we've enjoyed over the last 20 years. As a technical matter, I, I do believe we have the power. We have the tools uh, we need to withdraw monetary stimulus soon enough and rapidly enough to keep inflation on target. But as a practical matter, we have to recognize we're gonna be in uncharted territory 
And that's going to make it difficult to get the timing just right. In the Fed's 99-year history, we have never eased monetary policy as aggressively as we've done over the last few years. The larger our balance sheet is when the time comes to withdraw monetary stimulus, the more difficult and risky that process will be. Uh, in my view, the balance of considerations suggests that we should be standing pat now rather than easing policy further. One other aspect of uh, Fed policy is unprecedented right now besides the sheer size of our balance sheet. Until this recession, we've generally uh, restricted ourselves to purchasing and selling U.S. Treasury securities, uh, direct obligations of the U.S. Treasury. That's how we change the supply of money to expand and contract it, uh, to line up with demand and get inflation just right. Uh, as I noted, though, we've been buying mortgage-backed securities, uh, most recently at a pace of about $40 billion uh, worth per month. This raises broad concerns that, that worry me and ought to worry us, I think. Um, bu buying mortgage-backed securities, rather than instead buying the same amount of U.S. Treasury securities, uh, may reduce borrowing rates for... Uh, conforming home mortgages, those that go into those mortgage-backed securities. But if it does so, it's going to increase interest rates on other borrowers, small businesses, for example. I have seen no convincing case for distorting markets in this way by channeling credit uh, to housing debt and away from small businesses and other borrowers. I don't see why that would be a net plus for the economy. Moreover, I think this is an inappropriate role for the Federal Reserve. We're an independent entity, as I alluded to at the beginning. That comes with a responsibility uh, to be accountable for our primary function of uh, achieving low and stable inflation. We don't need to abuse that independence by using our independent balance sheet to channel funds, channel credit flows from one sector to another. This important principle was recognized in a joint statement issued by the Federal Reserve and the U.S. Treasury in March of 2009. It said, government decisions, I'm quoting here, government decisions to influence the allocation of credit are the province of fiscal authorities, that is, Congress and the administration. Those entities are subject to the constitutional provisions for the appropriation of funds, they're accountable to the American people. In contrast, we have a measure of independence, though we're accountable uh, for low uh, inflation. It's an abuse, I think, and an inappropriate role for the Federal Reserve to be engaged in ch choosing winners and losers um, in credit markets. As I said earlier, our main responsibility, I've emphasized this again and again in our talk, you're probably tired of hearing this, is that the Federal Reserve is responsible for price stability. On that score, I think uh, the record is good, um, reasonably good. Inflation's pretty close to 2% in recent years. Our focus should be maintaining uh, that record of success. I think that would be the best contribution we can make to economic growth going forward. That concludes my prepared remarks. I'd be delighted to take any questions or comments you have. Thank you. Do we have a little time? Uh, Dr. Becker? Yes, sir. Uh, my interest in the question is 
I, that, that's something, I, I'll, for those of you who might have heard that, the question was, he's a CPA um, and uh, has a lot of clients who have trouble borrowing money from banks um, and uh, apparently are told by the banks uh, that it's the regulator's fault. I'm paraphrasing here. So it's definitely the case the banking uh, regulatory supervisory regime has, has changed tremendously. And it's not just in the large banks. Um, in community banks around the country, there were pockets of difficulties. Now, it's, it's something that's uneven across the banking system. So it, um, how banks, what, what happened to banks in the crisis depended a lot on their strategies. Some were more, some had strategies that turned out a lot better than others. Um, and uh, the ones whose strategies didn't turn out so well suffered more losses than they expected and more losses than some other banks. And um, what regulators do is insist that they provision for those losses and restore their capital ratios um, because it's unsafe for a bank to operate with too little capital relative to its assets and deposits. Now, for them, uh, you know, they can raise more equity, but it's a, it's a tough time to raise equity to go into the banking, in, in the banking world. Um, the other thing they can do is shrink their balance sheet. Other banks are, um, came through the crisis better. Um, and uh, there are other community banks, regional banks that came through the crisis with more capital than some of their brethren and are better positioned to lend. And um, so this is a time where there's some shift in customers among banks. And so uh, some banks are going to be have a different stance towards a given customer than other banks. So I've been urging um, bank borrowers that this is a good time to uh, be diligent about shopping around for banking relationships uh, and making sure you're getting the best deal you can. Um, now, um, we've, heard, uh, we've heard the call. For the last two years, we've been hearing a lot about this, particularly in 2011, uh, from bankers themselves, but also from bank customers that, um, in some cases, uh, supervisors seem to have gone overboard in clamping down on bank risk-taking. We've done everything we can to educate our frontline supervisory staff um, about what flexibility they have under the rules and what they don't, about how to take a balanced approach. Um, we've invited members of the industry, um, members of the public to bring us your horror stories, bring us your, you know, your tales, and we'll investigate and try and get to the bottom of it. We've been working on that pretty diligently. And I'll say that the um, sort of the pace of the uh, the frequency with which I hear this has diminished over the course of the last year. Um, I think that um, people recognize that in some parts of the banking industry, they're falling all over themselves to look for, for creditworthy borrowers. And you know, if you've got a good credit, a good, a good borrower with you know, good financials and good prospects can generally get multiple offers. And bankers are complaining that the spreads on, on those good lending opportunities are just getting squeezed uh, razor thin. Um, so I've heard the opposite concern as well. It's a, it's a tough situation. There's no uh, magic wand we can wave to release the supply of credit. Um, you know, we, we think the balance is about right right now. Um, you know, it, it looks as if bank lending, which has been expanding over the last year or two, um, is being held back more by um, just the lack of, of people who really want to make a commitment and take on a big bank loan rather than, um, you know, rather than being held back by some artificial restraint on bank lending. Now, having said that, I'll have to point out as well, there's a, 
sort of a range of compliance costs that have risen in the banking world, and we're still we're still not there completely. We we're not, we haven't completely worked through the process of adjusting to a new regulatory regime. And and I'll mention the consumer side regulations in particular, where um, you know a, a, the fallout has been a, a sh significant sort of shift of burden uh, to banks. Uh, to make sure that what they're doing is is um, wholesome for for their consumer for their customers, um, and I, I think we're still sorting through that. There's still regs to be written. There's still shoes to drop on that front, and um, uh, those costs, you know, are are something we as a society have decided uh, it's worth imposing on banks, but they'll be passed on to bank customers, and uh, we're not quite back to we're not. I don't think we're right. We're, I don't think we've achieved a situation where that we found out where the incidence is going to be. Whether it's going to be on the deposit side, the lending side, is it going to be small borrowers? Is it going to be larger borrowers? Who's going to bear the cost of this extra compliance cost? Uh, but we'll see as it goes forward. Good question, though. Yes, sir. Good question. Um, uh, there are probably people in the room with greater expertise than me on this subject, but uh, through Pat and our other directors in our, our regional economics unit and the intelligence gathering we do around here, and the modicum of understanding of what's been going on out here. Um, we've certainly been hearing for a couple of years now about um, the effect, um, the pretty significant economic impact of the change in philosophy at the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, that seemed to initiate about four years ago. Um, and, uh, you know, I, as a Federal Reserve official, I'm not going to advocate for one particular approach to environmental regulation over another. But I, you know, I do feel it's within um, my remit uh, to, you know, warn officials that um, uncertainty about the rules of the game can have a dampening effect on growth. And I hear from, uh, you know, I talked in my, my remarks about having heard from a lot of contacts about uncertainty, a lot of them say, look, I don't care which way you go, just tell me the rules of the game. Um, and I think uh, you know, we're in this sort of transition period. And the way EPA regulations work, that there's the regulation. And once you find out the regulation, then there's the litigation. And that overhang, that sort of time period where you don't know which way it's going to shake out is just an unfortunate consequence of, of, of the, the other objectives the agencies, no doubt, you know, it has a well-intentioned, um, you know, view about um, uh, achieving. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's been, it's, it's been beneficial to the state that, you know, you've, while, you, while coal has been hurt by the, you know, depressed natural gas prices, um, and the, that's been a, those prices have been a byproduct of the exploration, which has been um, particularly across the northern tier an important part 
of uh, West Virginia's story over the last couple of years as well. Um, you know, I'm encouraged by um, uh, you know prospects of ancillary industries uh, that that use natural gas byproducts as feedstocks. Um, traditionally, has been there's been a strength in that here with chemicals um, and various various other things, and and hopefully there can be some innovation and some some sensible decisions made about siting and permitting uh, that let projects like that go forward that use the abundant natural resources around here. Um, so I, I see some bright spots uh, for West Virginia. Um, I'm sorry I don't have any pull with EPA, though. So I think the most likely outlook is you know, some some something that avoids the fiscal cliff, something in the the lame duck session that avoids a, a fiscal cliff, and then something next year that accomplishes that long run sustainability. So that's that's kind of my basic outlook, and that's behind my two percent forecast. So if they got their act together, if we got Simpson Bowles or some grand bargain this session. You know, I'd pick that growth forecast up half a percent more. I think we could get we could get three percent or more growth if they could cut a deal by the end of the year uh, that's global and sustainable and convincing. Um, on the other hand, if the if the can gets kicked farther down, if we go off the fiscal cliff, um, I think we're going to get a quarter or two of negative growth, um, and I, I think that could could constitute a minor recession. Nothing like the last great contraction, but I think we'd get a we could get a small recession out of that. Um, so those those sort of frame those sort of frame uh, the range of possible outcomes. But my two percent builds in another can kick, which unfortunately I think is 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 uh, um, uh, a, a plausible outcome. Go over here somewhere. Yeah, in the center. Yes, sir. That's a good question. I get that a lot. So uh, Glass-Steagall, um, for the uninitiated, uh, is a law that was passed in the Great Depression that separated investment banking from uh, regular old plain uh, vanilla banking. So uh, banks that accepted deposits and made loans couldn't be connected with banks uh, that did things like that uh, do things like underwrite securities or buy and sell stocks and bonds, um, and that that began to erode in the 1980s. Um, it, it was never a solid wall. There were always, the, the banks could always do a little bit of it. The big banks could always do a little bit of it. And um, that wall was taken down by an act passed in the very late 1990s um, that allowed banks like Bank of America to have investment banking operations like their Merrill Lynch affiliate, for example, um, and allowed um, you know, Goldman Sachs, for example, to have a, a depository institution to accept deposits. So there's been a lot of debate about this. It, it doesn't look like that was 
essential to the contraction and the financial market turmoil we had in 2008. So it, lo it looks as if we could have gotten into, easily gotten into just as much trouble if we hadn't abolished Glass-Steagall. Um, and uh, so for example, Bear Stearns in March of 2008 received uh, Federal Reserve assistance to merge with JP Morgan Chase. So it, it re received some assistance to help uh, buffer the shock to creditors uh, from their collapse. Um, what um, they, were not, they weren't doing deposit banking in any meaningful way. They were strictly, pretty much strictly an investment company. And so Glass-Steagall wouldn't have prevented them from getting into trouble the way they did. A number of large banking institutions, Washington Mutual, IndyMac, uh, that got into trouble in 2008, also not significantly involved in investment markets, would have still gotten, would have still been able to get in as much trouble as they did. So if you take, let's take a step back. The, the broad problem here is that we made too many mortgages, um, people bought too many homes, people built too many homes. Um, that must have been fueled, that, that seems to have been fueled by some artificial subsidies to risk-taking in the housing finance market. And uh, that didn't depend on the combination of, of banking and finance. Um, and um, it seems to have been fueled by the behavior of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac um, and other, other people who were buying mortgage-backed securities who were sort of essentially tainted by moral hazard. They had government backstops of some form or another uh, that led them to be insufficiently mindful of downside risk. Now, having said that, um, you know the argument that can be made about Glass-Steagall is that um, is is that the it, it might be easier to constrain risk taking at very large financial institutions if um, you know if we feel the need to. Now, here I have to talk a, a little bit more about something else that happened across this crisis. So, but taking a step back here, so there's banks and there's bank holding companies. Um, and a, a you know a holding company, bank holding companies, any entity that owns a bank, um, up until the crisis, our regulatory and supervisory practice was based on the presumption that deposit insurance stood behind the depositors of the bank, and we were in the business of preventing risks at the bank. Risk taking at the bank holding company was generally of interest to. Um, regulators and supervisors only in so much as it could affect the bank. So we were in the business of keeping risks away from the bank. In 2008, we set very different precedents. In several instances in late 2008, we used government money to support and rescue the short-term creditors of bank holding companies. That was what, uh, what was unprecedented, and that's what that's what all the confusion was about, and that's what caused all the turmoil, was the uncertainty about where the government backstop was going to be. We backstopped Bear Stearns, then we didn't backstop Lehman, then we did backstop AIG that had a really tiny bank, uh, but we were backstopping you know, the non-bank the, the non affiliates. So that, that confusion is what whipsawed markets at the end of 2008, but it sets this precedent, and it's that's causing, that's part of the cause of the, the wrenching reconfiguration of our bank regulatory and supervisory regime now. So the, 
the strong case that could be made about Glass-Steagall isn't that it contributed to the crisis. It's that um, now that we, now that, now that politically we feel as if we need to backstop bank holding companies and their their investors, um, that we ought to constrain risk taking more broadly at those institutions. I'm not sure how I feel about that argument, but that's the strong case you could make for Glass-Steagall return. Someone else back there? Great. Mm -hmm. I didn't, um, so I didn't think it's, it hasn't been negative very often. I don't think it's negative. I think it's around two or three percent, but it, it has been, um, uh, you know, it has been low uh, in, in sort of this broad historical terms. So let me say a word about savings because it's interesting. Um, it sheds an interesting light on uh, financial markets, financial services, and, and um, our economy. So. Up until the mid, early mid-1980s, um, savings rates were pretty high, like 10% or more in the US, personal savings rates. So the way we measure this is take personal household income, uh, disposable household income, so after-tax income, and uh, take what people spend on consumption, so what, what they spend on goods and services, subtract that, and, and what's left over is savings, and then divide that by income. Now that steadily declined after the 1980s. And if you think about how you managed your household finances versus how your parents did, you know, our parents' generation didn't have the access to unsecured consumer credit that we do. And this began in the 80s where you'd had a credit card, you'd get them in the mail all the time, and uh, instead of keeping sa a savings account full of rainy day funds, you could keep, um, a set of the last six credit card offers you had on your desk. Um, or, you know, or you could actually get the cards and keep the cards there. So um, manage, you know, managing household finance can be very different. Now, I'm saying if you don't need as much savings, you can run your savings down. And consumer seems to have done that over the last couple of decades. Um, and uh, now that's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a plus and a minus. So it's a little riskier for consumers because Unsecured debt is something you have to be really careful about using, and it's it's clear that um, I think we've done a poor job. This is an aside about financial education. I think we've done a poor job in our country of educating our youngsters. They should get this in school about how to manage their finances and how to make decisions given the range of financial products available and how to make intelligent decisions. Uh, you know, we found this out in the 20s that it made sense to teach kids in high school how to drive cars, because now they had cars, which they didn't have in 1900. We're gonna have to do, we need to do the same thing now that we have such a, you know, a wide array of financial products available to people. <clears throat> but I digress. Um, so that's one reason for the secular decline. Now then, you know, we've had this, this burst of caution uh, that I talked about that, that led to the, inf the savings rate to rise. Um, and, um, at this point, that, that savings rate you know, has, has come down for a couple of months, which um, you know, may be the trend you're thinking about. There, you know, so when consumers are willing to keep expanding spending, 
at, at a rate greater than their income goes up, to some extent that reflects some confidence. So you, you can look at longer run trends in savings, but on a quarter to quarter basis, a dip in the savings rate can, in, can indicate consumers expect, you know, expect things to be okay. They're, they're not as worried about job loss. Uh, they're willing to take the risk. They're willing to run down savings. They're willing uh, to you know, put something on a credit card figure and they'll, they'll pay it off over a couple of months. And that confidence is good for the economy. So uh, it's a, sort of a double-edged sword. But that's my general kind of framework I use for thinking about savings. Um, so the question had to do with the nickname for the latest quantitative easing is QE infinity. I'm not quite sure why. Um, but uh, so l let, me, l let me get s specific on you here. Um, uh, so the, the Federal Reserve initiated in uh, September um, a program of purchasing mortgage-backed securities uh, and expanding our balance sheet. Um, last year, uh, we initiated a program called the Maturity Extension Program. Under that program, uh, we're buying long-term treasuries, but we're selling an equivalent amount of short-term treasuries. So what we've been doing up until this past September, this September, has been uh, sort of twisting our balance sheet. Uh, so it hasn't been increasing the total size of the balance sheet. We've just been selling short-term securities, things that mature less than two or three years and buying longer-term securities. And the theory there is that we can push the yield curve down, make the longer-term securities scarcer in the hands of the public and drive up their prices and down their yields. Um, so the maturity extension program that we initiated last year was renewed in June of this year. Um, and it was renewed in a size that basically takes us through the end of this year. <clears throat> so the maturity extension program is slated to um, end later this year. The S September statement in which we announced that we were beginning a program of purchasing mortgage-backed securities described it in sort of open-ended terms. As we're, we're just going to do this $40 billion a month. It also said that um, in a few months, uh, we will reevaluate uh, the program. We will look, it, it says, the committee said it will look at whether um, labor market conditions have strengthened enough um, for the committee to be satisfied. Um, and so the implication there is that if labor market conditions are strong um, you know, in December, that we will um, stop buying mortgage-backed securities or long-term treasury securities. The implication, you know, uh, conversely, is that if labor market conditions are in, not strong enough that the committee will continue with mortgage-backed security purchases um, and perhaps even um, uh, uh, initiate a program of buying longer-term <coughs> treasury securities outright um, rather than through this um, process where we sell short-term securities. So um, that's, that's the basic situation. That we've, that's the basic outlook that the committee's communicated uh, to the public. Um, how that, you know, it's too soon to say, and I'm not going to speak for my, my colleagues on the committee about the judgment of whether labor market conditions are 
are going to be sufficient enough in at our December meeting or not. Um, uh, you know, it, it, leave that to you to sort of judge. Um, but that's that's the basic situation. Sure. Is it the first time that the Federal Reserve is trying to buy uh, commitments from a, a sector like uh, the housing market, so to speak, mortgages? Because my concern is what impedes the bank tomorrow from, okay, we're going to buy whatever, uh, you know, car loans and, uh, and then, uh, you know, other debentures of, uh, and, you know, is that a, a very risky area to be entering in? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, uh, the question is, you know, is, um, is this unprecedented for the Fed? And the, the answer is in the modern era, um, since, since, in, since 1951, when we essentially obtained, after World War II, the independent control of our balance sheet, um, we have not um, invested in a, a particular sector's debt. We've restricted ourselves to treasuries only. So there's a lot, there are a lot of risks involved in this. And the, the risk, you know, main risk I fear is one of, of political entanglements. I mean, it, it, it sets a precedent for us. Um, you know, the housing finance market has its proponents. Uh, those who, who um, promote housing finance promote housing. Uh, we have a, it's a sector that's heavily subsidized already. Um, it, it benefits from the activities of the government sponsored enterprises, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, that are now in receivership, but even when they were privately held, were viewed as backed, implicitly backed by the government, likely to be rescued by Congress, and in fact, it turned out they were rescued, um, and as a result, enjoyed um, lower uh, funding costs than any other entity would. We have the home mortgage interest deduction, um, and you know, so we have some major subsidies in place for housing. Um, it, it's not obvious to me what the rationale would be for trying to lower funding costs even further in that sector. The entanglement part is that, you know, once, once we do something like that, it just opens a Pandora's box for us because it opens us to special, plead, speedy, special pleading from particular sectors that say, well, what about us? What about our credit? You know, I think the Federal Reserve's, the, the independence of our balance sheet is, is extremely special. And we deserve to treat that with very great care and not abuse it, because using our using our balance sheet to do something that is an, is an end run around these uh, constitutional checks and balances on appropriations uh, that that you have to stand up to a vote in Congress if you if you want to channel funds to a particular sector and not using the federal the federal budget, and yet we're able to do it because of our independent balance sheet. The independent balance sheet serves a useful role in monetary policy. So in world, we got this in 1951. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of a, um, a, a junkie for Fed history, um, so bear with me here. But in, 19, in, the, in the 40s, during the war, um, we kept interest rates artificially low in order to keep the funding cost of the government low during World War II. But the consequence is that we were buying all those securities. We were buying all the debt the Treasury was issuing in order to keep interest rates low and to peg their prices high. Well, that created a lot of money, which would have cost a lot of inflation. That's why we had price controls in World War II. Well, after World War II, the price controls come off, and we get, in 1951, we got out from under this obligation to peg 
federal interest, um, the interest rate on U.S. Treasuries and financed the debt. That gave us independence from the Treasury. Um, and that's what began our existence as a modern central bank, uh, where we're accountable for macroeconomic outcomes when we've had some good decades and some bad decades. And we've taken our hits for those, and we're willing to stand up and be answerable for those. But n n you know, you, we don't have the Treasury telling us what interest rates are going to be from month-to-month -month basis. And that insulation from politics is an important ingredient in our success. And central banks around the world have found that in, uh, independence is important. So uh, sorry, a little bit of a uh, harangue here, a little bit of a diatribe on Fed independence. But um, it's something that I think ought to worry people about the Federal Reserve. So I think the rate of growth um, in um, GDP and consumer spending uh, has to pick up notably. Uh, it's been averaging around 2%. We've gotten some fluctuations around that, little blips from quarter to quarter, you know, a 3, a 1, around that. Um, but it has to pick up on a sustained basis. So it looks like we're on a, a trend that's more like 3% or more. If we get numbers that show that with a commensurate pickup in in the rate of job, uh, net job growth, uh, I think that'll be a sign that we need to pick up interest rates and, 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 and uh, start winding down our balance sheet. I think we're just about right for uh, taking a break, and I want to thank uh, uh, Dr. Lecker for his work. Well, thank you all for having me out here. Greatly appreciate it.